from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home. The podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. We're your hosts, Leif Johansson and Nate DePaul. Hey, thanks for tuning in. A few weeks ago, I realized that it has been way too long since we last did a business highlight here on Close to Home. And what better business to highlight this fall than one of our local cideries? So the other day, I sat down with Andy Brennan, co-founder of the Aaron Burr Cidery in Wurtsboro, New York, in the southeast corner of Sullivan County. And despite being a hard cider enthusiast myself, I learned so much from Andy, not just about cider making, but also the rich history of apple cider here in upstate New York, and some of his philosophies about what it means to ethically and effectively run a local business. With that said, I am just going to sit back and play you the bulk of my conversation with Andy Brennan. So here it goes. I'm Andy Brennan. Uh, my wife and I, Polly, started Aaron Burr Cidery in Wurtsboro, New York in 2008. It was called The Cidery back then because um, the concept of a cidery was new to America. It actually was ancient to America, but forgotten for at least 100 years in the rest of the world. Here in Southern County, like, um, cider had been you know, you know, the North Branch Cider Mill by you, there, uh, people have been making cider all along, but sort of hidden, almost like moonshining. Uh, cider was like stuck back in the, uh, in the hills, basically, uh, and while the rest of modernity sort of gravitated toward uh, beer, wine, and other drinks. But last but not least, cider sort of came around um, finally after several little attempts uh, to kind of make it back in the mainstream around 10 years ago, or actually closer about five years ago. So Polly and I moved uh, to Wurtsboro in 2006, and we learned uh, of people making cider in their basement. And um, it was unlike anything in the uh, grocery stores. There was um, something called um, woodchuck cider, which is s- similar uh, to like, if you're familiar with um Balmers or uh, uh, Angry Orchard or any um, anyway, sort of like this, um, nothing like the stuff in the basements up here. So we wanted to start a, uh, we wanted basically to create a cider company that was uh, representative of the local cider, uh, the basement cider, which is basically like a basement wine. So that's what we did. This was what, 2008. We call it the cidery, named after uh, the British tradition of uh, British word, basically, the cidery, like the word winery. And such a license didn't exist in America at the time. So um, we had to get a winery license. I mean, I think there was only six cider makers at the time. By 2011, there was more. And so we couldn't call it the cidery. We called it Aaron Burr Cidery after the, uh, the guy who owned our property briefly in 1817 and you know he of course shot hamilton 
Uh, but we wanted a, a local name that represented that time period because uh, um, I know for a fact that cider was at its sort of peak. Um, it's going to be a lot higher eventually, but it was historically at its peak in America around then, early 1800s, because of the type of apples that we had grown and the way in which we were planting apple trees and making cider. Very similar to the way Sullivan County has always been doing it. Are apples native to this area? Did Europeans plant apples when they got to this area? And then how did drinking hard cider become part of the culture around here? Are you familiar with the history of cider in the region? Well, the answer to the first part of that question is they're not native to uh, the United States. They came over literally like with the Mayflower on it by a handful of seeds, and they started planting them uh, in uh, their earliest settlements, including New Amsterdam and Kingston, where um, the Native Americans, which at that point, there was it wasn't as necessarily as hostile as it sort of became, they were trading with uh, the Europeans. And in some ways, the Native Americans are who introduced the apple to this particular region in western New York soon after the Europeans introduced it to um, along the Hudson River and then of course out by um, uh, the the Boston area and a few spots south but um, the apple tree loves it here and the reason why why cider becomes such a major part of the tradition here is because a- apples are one of the very few crops I mean I, I can't name others other than uh, native crops and trees um, that do well in these soils. And as you know, Southern County's got really poor soil, except of course, like in some prime spots along rivers and, you know, floodplains. But uh, for the most part, we're in a a very rocky, very shallow, very acidic, heavy clay, nasty cold temperatures, which would kill other crops. I mean, we've got a pretty nasty environment for most of the crops that the Westerners would have loved to have uh, grown. But apple trees, they're, they're a tree. And if you, uh, you know, you look up in the Catskills and you look at the cliffs of the Catskills, which is pure rock outcroppings, you'll see, you'll see trees everywhere, not apple trees, but you see trees everywhere. So the, the apple tree is a intelligent species, which um, learned, it learns and it adapts to where it is. In many ways, it, it followed the example of the native trees and its own history of living in horrendous, rocky, cold climates, like where it's originally from, Kazakhstan. And it adapted because it was one of the only things we could grow. We didn't grow grapes. We was not the Bordeaux. We made cider. And we have a long history of it, not just agricultural history, an artistic history as well. Were the varieties of apples that were being used in the 17 and 1800s very different from the varieties of apples we would find being made into cider today? Um, Yeah, very much so, both in quantity and quality. The um, uh, apples that you see in grocery stores that is representative of one, one trillion, zillion millionth of (laughs) of the apples that um, are in this world. So traditionally, cider is made from 
seedling apple trees, which is the genetic expression of uh, an apple. And then um, malice, the species, has actually more genetic diversity than humans. So it's uh, it has what's something called an extreme heterozygote, which has just a massive amount of genes, something like 60,000, to humans have like 20,000 as a reference there. It crosses and it creates uh, a new variety every single time. So if you could imagine a loaded apple tree with, let's just say a thousand apples on it, that's an underestimate compared to uh, uh, a full-size real apple tree on a, on a, on a big year, like 2021. So it's just say a thousand apples. Every single apple has five seeds in it. So now we're talking 5,000 seeds. Each one of those seeds is its own expression. So just one apple tree in one given year will produce uh, literally a thousand times the amount of apples that um, an apple farmer can name. So that's going off on on that uh, genetic expression part of it. But um, for that reason, that's how people used to plant apple trees. And that's what cider was made from originally. And nowadays... People use the uh, the leftover apples from those um, the big apple farms, which do grow those you know ten or twenty apples. We don't like acidity. We don't like tannin, so we've cultivated that out, and we like these big, juicy, uh, sweet apples with thin skin that look good. Every exact opposite of what you want to make a wine out of. Um, if you're familiar with table grapes, these big green seedless grapes. Um, last thing in the world you'd ever want to do is make a wine out of that and how, vice versa. How, how would I expect the wine to taste if I took uh, the green seedless grapes I bought at the grocery store and tried to make wine out of it? It would taste thin for the most part. I mean, it, it wouldn't have the body, the ageability, acid sort of broadens. Uh, it's like a parameter expanding. It's sort of like if you've got like a, a capsule, the, the tan and the acid ex- expands that so that you've got the, a much larger world within it. Vice versa, uh, you would never want to eat a, a wine grape. They're tiny, they're small, there's a lot of skin, often bitter, um, mostly seed. Um, so it's two different crops. There's And the same is true with apples. There's a wine crop and there's a table eating grape crop, you know, the stuff you get in uh, fruit salads. Totally different crop, totally different way of growing it two different farmers. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely two different farmers. This is something that we need to like get into the heads of Americans that this is your apple farm, the one that you love to pick, uh, you pick apples. That's not the one that you make cider out of. It's a different farm that does that. Yeah. And, and I've seen on the Aaron Burr Cidery website that you describe the, the cider you're making as kind of true cider in the old style of cider making, how would the cider that you're making be different from the bottle of Angry Orchard that I might get at the store? Well, I think Angry Orchard does have actually a local um, branch to them. I, in fact, I know they have an actual tasting room locally. Just outside um, of uh, New Paltz, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're sort of the exception to the rule and that for us, Angry Orchard might actually be a local drink. I mean, by that, I mean, the apples trees are local. I, I don't know anything about it, but um, 
uh, the rest of the world. And, you know, if you're in a, a gas station, Gila Bend, Arizona, and you see Angry Orchard, it's it, that's going to be from apple concentrate that's from China that's reconstituted and fermented. And it's not going to be, you know, it's not Hudson Valley apples, but um, my ciders and the ciders from the basements up here are high in acid. They have a tannin, which at first is sort of objectionable, but after about a year, um, that sort of disappears and it starts bringing other things back into the equation. First and foremost, our ciders are going to be dry. So when you go to the basement, you try a cider in a barrel, it, it has no sweetness at all. It doesn't taste like an apple. That's the most important. You, don't, you can drink wine. You don't want it to taste like a grape. Uh, there might be some peripheral notes of apple, particularly particular um, old-fashioned apples, um, which we in Hudson Valley might be familiar with, like Golden Russet or um, uh, Asopus Spitzenberg, some of these um, like 17, 18th century apples. But um, these are peripheral nuts. Um, really what we're looking for in a, in a good cider is exactly what we're looking for in a wine, which is a story, uh, the way a, a story has a, an arc to it, a, a beginning, middle, and end, and uh, resolution, uh, a beautiful flow, not these sort of choppy, a note here, a note here. And um, it all depends on complexity. And the apple tree, just on its own, provides that. The less we do, the the greater the story is. It's about the apple tree adapting and expressing itself. It's not about us forcing it to grow and produce the way we want it to. So, you know, we, Polly and I joke, the customer is always wrong. Um, <laughs> and they are. Uh, I'm an apple fanatic. I've been forging apples for uh, almost 30 years. And I don't know a thing about this species. Um it is so much more intelligent than um, we give it credit for. And, and really it's about it telling its story. So mm. I, I'm excited. I'm still excited about cider. It's got so, such a great uh, future. It's really about us following its lead. So it's going to be exciting as more and more people get into it. difficult to market that sort of more wine-like cider to a population that if they've tried cider before they're probably familiar with that more sweet kind of cider that's yeah. more like somewhat alcoholic apple juice mm -hmm. that was such a nightmare um <laughs> 15 years ago like trying to get people outside of appalachia basically to drink cider is uh is you know west virginia Catskills, New England, were the only people really drinking truly true cider and sophisticated cider. So trying to create a, it wasn't creating a market, it was just trying to reintroduce people to, um, to the way cider used to be. Mm. So yeah, really difficult to do at first. And we formed the few 
producers who were making cider back then, we we sort of formed a group and tried to like come up with ideas on how to market it. Uh, there's my heroes were all in New England, um, Farnham Hill and West County Ciders, who had been making really fine cider since the 80s. They uh, got involved with some of the New York producers, again, the six of us. And um, now there's literally thousands uh, around the nation um, to try to like offer suggestions on how we could get the New York population into cider. But we uh, just happened to be along for the ride because uh, the whole foodie world exploded uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago as well. And the real local, local voice people who in, in New York City, they were like, well, what grows just outside of town? So Paul and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time making cider from the local apples. And then it was easy because um, cider pairs so well with great foods. Lobster, especially this like sort of buttery, fatty food, um, and then you got that high, bright acid from the apple, sort of just cuts like you know, like cheese, cheeses, um, like buttery cheeses, uh, just it dissolves that. So then it, it it's just beautiful. So many things. Anyway, it's again, it's not nothing. I did nothing. The marketing is just like step back and let the apple tree do its thing. And um, I'm an artist, by the way, as a, as my background, Um, uh, I'm an idiot when it comes to money. I don't think about it. I still don't think about it. It just, I'm just so fortunate to be working with a much more intelligent species. Uh, (laughs) And that's what the apple tree is. It's, it's helping. It's, it's kept me alive for, for, for this long. (laughs) Could you walk me through a bit of the process of of making your cider, starting with getting the apples, or or maybe there's process before that too. Well, uh, at at first we didn't know anyone up here, so we just started. Uh, we had some apple trees on our property, and we just used the um, what we had and pressed them. And then we we're like, oh, this is not store bought cider, so we were like. Yeah, every fall we would just go out and like try to find more and more apples to make more and more ciders. And um, so you were just uh, kind of wandering through the region looking yeah. for apple trees on the side of the road, kind of. Yeah, the first real great discovery was we have docks, by the way. Um, so one year we went to a hay farm in Bloomingburg right on top of the Schwangunk, which I'm looking at right now. And um, the on the periphery of the hay farm, there were all these. This was in the uh, spring, right? It's the um, the no leaves in the trees yet, just but flowers were popping um, for particular like uh, the early things like the choke cherry and the dogwood, but the wild apples were as well. And everybody in Sullivan County knows this. They drive down the road and they're just it's gray, 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 gray in April, and then all of a sudden you see these white things in the woods, and that's that's the apple trees. We asked the farmer, um, and he said, "Yeah, look around. We found maybe fifty apple trees on his property. And he's like, yeah, come back uh, in the fall. And that's what we did. We That was our first real big sort of discovery of, of wild apples. And then little by little, as we started doing farmer's markets, people started coming to us and saying like, uh, well, we've got apple trees. Yeah, that sounds like uh, our property. And so now we've just, we're, we have way more apples than we could 
possibly forage. And I don't want to expand. I just like, I like to be in the one picking the apples. I don't want to like outsource that. So it's whatever Polly and I could pick with the help of two or three people every fall. <laughs> it's, a, it's as romantic as it sounds. Uh, I just wake up, uh, go out to other people's beautiful properties, uh, lay out the tarps and collect the apples, bring them back and press them. What's happening as you're pressing and after you're pressing those apples to end up getting this product of Aaron Burr Cider? We're foraging and mostly foraging September and October and then pressing toward the end of October through November and even December. And as soon as it's juice, in other words, right after it's pressed, we've got to position the cider to ferment, which means it has to be a certain temperature. And traditionally, this is all done in the basement where uh, that time of year, the temperature of the basement is still in the 60s. And that's perfect for fermenting. We used to do that too in our old dirt floor basement. But then when we got the license, I built a sort of an underground, partially underground room in our barn, which is insulated and it's got a concrete floor so I could move stuff around. And the idea is to create that um, seasonal cellar temperature of about, you know, low 60s, high 50s, where the fermentation gets started. And then the cooling temperatures start to slow the fermentation. Artistically, that's very important. But uh, somebody starting out, really, all you really want is just the fermentation going. Um, so 65 degrees is perfect. And then after about a, a week at that temperature, the cider just, it, it grows a yeast population, which is just insane. They're, uh, they're, they're eating the sugars, they're, they're parting, there's bubbles, there's literally little chunks of apples being thrown left and right. It's uh, yeast are they, you know, they're a creature. So they're, they're, they're having a party in the cider and they're eating the sugar and converting the sugars to alcohol. And that takes another uh, two or three weeks. The way I do it is, um, is, is a very delicate little balance between um, starving the yeast and disturbing their population so that they don't sort of overgorge. And naturally, the temperatures would be doing that. I, I just keep a very fine eye on it. By Christmas, the cider is dormant. Um, it's too cold. If you keep an eye on it and it still has some life going, some sugars to eat, then the cider hits dormancy. It's a perfect conditions. You just, they have this uh, bung, this little rubber uh, cork. You, you jam into the, uh, the, the bung hole, the barrel. And um, the cider just sits there like a bear all winter long. You don't disturb it. And then in the spring, it starts to wake up again. And that's when I bottle right around March and April. If you bottle then, you need to bottle in a carbonated bottle, champagne bottles, essentially, because there's still so much life in the yeast and in the cider. If you don't use like a heavy bottle, the carbonation will continue and then it'll, um, the bottles will explode. So it's... Um, yeah. <laughs> have, you, have you had that happen before? Oh, I got all the time. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Once it's to, bottled, yeah. does, does it age well like wine? I mean, you know, you can pull out a bottle of wine from 
2006 and you know, it might be peak wine deliciousness. Um, would you find something similar with cider or is it basically just as good to drink or maybe better to drink when you first bottle it? A decent cider you would never want within the first nine months. Yeah, it has to be a minimum nine months. Like there is no Beaujolais of cider that I know of. It, ultimately, you'd want to be using the right tannic, um, acidic, high bricks apples that do age. So I, I would say cider should be the the appropriate apples. A good cider should be like drank between nine months and five years, somewhere in that range. It doesn't quite have the structure of a, of a red wine to last for 10, 20 years, but it it does have yeah, it's not like a it's not like your average white wine where you 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 need to drink it in that first uh couple of years. If someone wanted to find Aaron Burr cider mm-hmm. in our area, where might they be able to pick some up? Um well luckily the people who support local and small, they're everywhere um in Southern County. We have uh, Main Street Farm. John, who I took business class with, this is back 2008, Main Street Farm. They have always supported us. So I, first and foremost, I'm always going to say go to Main Street Farm. But there's great, I mean, the wine merchant in Calicoon. There's in Forestburg, this new general store in Mountaindale. There's a cat shop. Hey, cat, if you're listening. There's a, there's a, uh, lots of places. Uh, and Hurleyville is Los Lamina. I mean, there's, uh, I'm sorry if I haven't named you, but anywhere small and local and, and uh, your listeners, they know. <laughs> and if not me, somebody else, somebody else small and local. I don't care. I don't need a monopoly on cider uh, in the county. Really, wherever it's local. Thank you so much to Andy Brennan from Aaron Burr Cidery for giving us an inside look at local cider making on this week's episode. I've got to say, with all the apple trees growing around the Catskills, I really want to try making cider now. If I do, I will let you know how it goes. And by the way, if you enjoy listening to Close to Home from Radio Catskill, you can find lots more of our episodes wherever delicious podcasts are picked, pressed, and aged to perfection. Or if podcast platforms aren't your thing, that is totally okay. You can check out our episodes at wjffradio.org. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from Radio Catskill. Stay warm and have a great week.